We turn this evening to Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah's prophecy in the starting in the 50th chapter. In Jeremiah 50, we'll begin our reading there at verse 1. Hear once again the word of our holy, gracious God. The word that the Lord spake against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare ye among the nations and publish and set up a standard. Publish and conceal not. Say, Babylon is taken. Baal is confounded. Merodach is broken in pieces. Her idols are confounded. Her images are broken in pieces. For out of the north there cometh up a nation against her, which shall make her land desolate, and none shall dwell therein. They shall remove. They shall depart, both man and beast. In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, They and the children of Judah together, going and weeping, they shall go and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, Come, and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's word this evening. We, of course, are looking this evening to observe the ordinance of covenanting, something that is commanded to God's people of all ages in both administrations of the covenant of grace. And we come this evening to a text that perhaps you might not think is so very applicable. We come, of course, to a text that shows us that the prophet Jeremiah was a prophet to the nations. The calling of Jeremiah was very basic. I ordained thee, says God, to be a prophet unto the nations. I have set thee, he goes on to say, over the nations and over the kingdoms, to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. And why was Jeremiah called? Well, the Lord tells us here. He's called to be a prophet to the nations because the Lord hath a controversy with the nations. We find in chapters 46 to 52, Jeremiah functioning in precisely that way. As God's prophet, as the Lord's mouthpiece, he comes to all the nations. He goes to Egypt, to Assyria, to Edom, to Babylon. And he brings before them the controversy which the Lord has with them. Well, you see, friend, at first brush then, it doesn't seem that this text has much to do with covenanting. Here it seems very much as though simply the wrath of God has been laid bare. But as you look at verses 4 and 5, we get some clarity. Some clarity about what is going on outside of these nations with whom the Lord is dealing in judgment. But also some clarity about the kind of repentance and, of course, the kind of covenanting that the Lord will do in those who do repent. I'm thinking here of verses 4 and 5. We're told here, in those days and in that time... Uh, It's a general time stamp that the scriptures give to us that tell us that 
certainly after that particular event that's in view. In this case, the destruction of Babylon, these things will happen. It is emphasizing the fact that it will only be after Babylon is destroyed that the things that are now contained in verses 4 and 5 will be accomplished. It doesn't necessarily mean anything immediate. In fact, throughout the scriptures you'll find that even this phrase stands before things that will be accomplished only centuries, even in some cases millennia, after the prophet speaks. But what it does say in certainty, with emphasis, is that these things will be accomplished after Babylon has been destroyed, and not before. Well, what are the things to be accomplished? In the fourth verse we have that change. Here the Lord beforehand had been dealing with all the Gentile nations, but then he comes to two. He comes to Israel and he comes to Judah. And friend, you remember that the prophet Jeremiah lives in a time when these are two distinct nations. You remember Israel here represents the ten northern tribes that had seceded from the house of David. Judah here represents that confederation still under the house of David, that confederation that comprised the tribes of both Judah and Benjamin, and any of those who had fled the defection of the ten northern tribes. But what you can't miss, friend, is that the Lord here summons to our gaze two very different nations. Different in the sense that their worship was very, very different. You remember the false worship of the ten northern tribes, the true worship of Judah and Benjamin. They were different also in terms of their government. How often had the house of Israel what witnessed as one king gave over to another, one dynasty concluded and another raised up. And of course, these two kingdoms were not alike in their judgment. Assyria would come and would obliterate the northern kingdoms. Judah would be destroyed, taken captive by Babylon. But what they were alike were in these things. They were alike in that they had a foundational covenant. God had entered into covenant with their father Abraham. And they were also alike in the fact that they had neglected Forgotten, violated that covenant. Dissimilar in so many ways, but alike in covenant breaking. But as you come to these verses, we recognize here that the prophet is looking not to a period of defection. He comes to a period of great repentance, which he gives to us in certain activities. And I want us to see this, friend, because in verses 4 and 5 of this text, we have the prophet focusing on something that is not unique to Jeremiah himself. He, he focuses on an event that some, was something that the prophets were preoccupied with throughout their ministries. Something that the prophets give witness to time and time again. And so I want us to see that, but I, I want us to see that briefly as we look through the rest of the scriptures to show us what precisely the prophet has in view. I want you to notice, friend, that the first activity that we have here in the fourth verse is just this. They are coming together. Israel and Judah that have been divided were at various stages at war with one another, are now united, coming together. Jeremiah earlier prophesied the same thing. He writes, In those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given for an inheritance of your fathers. But then here Isaiah, The envy also of Ephraim, that tribe that stands synecdochially for all the ten northern tribes, the envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. 
Take Hosea, a prophet that we've taken up laterally. The children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint themselves one head. And then, even more graphically, take the prophet Ezekiel. I, says the Lord, will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his fellows, and will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. My servant David shall be their prince forever. Here you have the prophets with one voice saying, The kingdoms of Israel and Judah that were once warring against one another will one day be joined again. And we're told joined again under one head. David, the Lord's servant. Now the first activity is this union. The second is weeping. I want you to notice verse 4. Here we're told that Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, going and weeping. Again, this is not something unique to Jeremiah. Hear Zechariah. Zechariah 10 reads, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. Joseph there representing again, synecdochially, all the ten northern tribes. And I will bring them again to one to, to where I place them, for I have mercy upon them. Now the question, of course, is, well, what form does this mercy take? The prophet later on tells us precisely how this mercy will manifest. I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. How will this mercy be manifest? It will be manifest in the very thing that Jeremiah anticipates, that this union will also be incorporating weeping, mourning, now, friend, if it's weeping, it's also asking. Know what here the prophet tells us. They shall go and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward. The prophet Isaiah anticipates the very same thing, but with something more of a global aspect. He writes in Isaiah 2, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above all the hills. All nations shall flow into it. Many people shall go and say, Come ye. And let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, friend, what's striking about the text is that the prophet again is living in that time when the kingdom has been divided. But when the Gentile nations go and ask for the law of God, when they go up to Zion and they call to Israel, the prophet doesn't say they're going only to Judah. Neither does he even say they're going to Israel. Which we would take to be likely the ten northern tribes. Note what he says. O house of Jacob. All of those who form that nation. Who belong to Jacob. Come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. And the fruit friend of all of these things. Is what you have in the fifth verse. Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord. In a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. In many ways, friend, that is the fruition of all that's gone before. As we draw these things together briefly, friend, we have to recognize that what Jeremiah sees here is a new covenant prophecy, not something to be completed in the Old Testament. I want you to notice how the Apostle Paul anticipates this in Romans 11. 
He says this blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Note that. He tells us earlier he's speaking there of Israel of the flesh. He says that blindness has in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. In other words, what the Apostle is anticipating is this. There will be a once again engrafting of ethnic Israel. And friend, it will happen just as the prophet Isaiah told us. The nations will come and cry to Jacob, come with us to the house of the Lord. But I want you to notice, friend, as you look at Isaiah 19, again, another new covenant promise. You have something very similar to what you have in our own text. In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan. The Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. The fullness of the Gentiles that that the Lord has in view in Romans 11 including Egypt, including Assyria, are those who are described here as those who will do precisely what Israel and Judah are doing in Jeremiah 50. That is making a vow unto the Lord and performing it as the Lord's people. And friend, what you have here in Zechariah 2 is very much the same. He writes, anticipating this, many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Not Israel alone any longer, but many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. Friend, what you have here is a new covenant promise of ethnic Israel once again coming under Jehovah, and that for the Lord Jesus Christ. But you also have in the fifth verse genuine covenanting then, what it is really to vow unto the Lord. Now, beloved, as we look at this briefly this evening, what this teaches us as we hold all of these things together is that covenant renewal requires repentance and faith. Covenant renewal requires repentance and faith. And I want us to see that under two headings. To see the covenant as it comes into view in this text and also to see the covenanters. And so, first of all, the covenant itself. We have to ask the question in verse 5, What is this covenant that really stands as the fruition of their turning back to Jehovah? Well, beloved, as you look at throughout the scriptures, there is only one covenant. One covenant that's inviolable. And that is, of course, the covenant of grace. Again, Romans 11. This is my covenant unto them, that is Israel, when I shall take away their sins. The apostle goes on to write, and the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Substantially, they are simply renewing the covenant of grace that was first made with Abraham. And then under the new covenant administration, we have inaugurated in our own day. But you see, friend, what the people here are doing is not renewing the old covenant in the old covenant administration. They are renewing the one covenant of grace in the new covenant administration. And we say that for a very basic reason. Know what the writer says here. They will join themselves into a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. Very much unlike Israel under the old covenant. Now friend, in the new covenant we're told this. 
I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. As they had done under the first covenant administration. As they had done before. This will be a covenant perpetually observed. This is the very thing the Lord has promised. Calvin on this point I think is quite helpful. He writes, as the Jews had become covenant breakers, that covenant is called weak and evanescent. When the Jews were returned, God's covenant would again become so valid and fixed that it would never fail, even because their hearts would be renewed, so that they would be faithful to God and never become apostates anymore like their fathers. This is the same covenant of grace that they're renewing here, but for they're renewing it in a new way, in a new covenant way. And beloved, what you see here then is that these covenanters, they're looking only to renew God's gracious covenant. That covenant, as the apostle says, that promised even the forgiveness of sins through Christ. Now beloved, when covenanters do so, they are recommitting themselves to be the Lord's through Christ. I want to take you back just briefly, friend, to what we read from 2 Corinthians 8. There you remember the apostle tells us about the Macedonian church. He tells us there that they gave themselves to the Lord and then to us. Now, friend, as you look at that text, the apostle goes on to tell us there also that as they gave themselves to the Lord, it was in a way unexpected by the apostles. And so that tells us some very basic things. As this church gave themselves to the Lord, it was not merely a profession of faith. They were already a church. They were already a professing body of believers. But when the apostles come to them, they pledge themselves to be the Lord's in an unexpected and in a new way. They give themselves to be the Lord's. And friend, how are they to do that? Well, friend, he says here that they are doing so by giving themselves to the Lord. He doesn't say to God absolute, God without mediator, but to the Lord. And for we are supposed to understand that that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, friend, when a man renews covenant, when a soul renews the covenant of grace, they are saying that they are not renewing the covenant of works. It's very much what the covenanter is crying here. Is what you have in the words of the Apostle. I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but done, that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Friend, in other words, what they are doing is they are saying, I would hold to no other righteousness, to no other covenant, not to the covenant of works, but to this covenant of grace that the Lord God has made. And so they received the law as the law of Christ rather than the law of works. Galatians 6.2 and Romans 3.27. In other words, the covenanter comes then happily under the conditions and looking for every promised and quickening grace. He looks, in other words, to those promises that the Lord has made in Ezekiel. Where the Lord says, a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to keep my judgments and to do them. Note the promise there. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. He's speaking, of course, there of the ministry of the Spirit of God, working and compelling the people of God to be a willing people in the day of his power. The covenanter, as he comes to renew the covenant of grace, is looking to these promises. He's looking to these promises to hold him fast to that which he's vowing. 
And Lord's friend, he avouches the Lord to be his God, and so he throws himself upon God's faithfulness in all of these promises. In other words, friend, as he signs the covenant, his eyes fixed on this. Faithful is he that calleth you, who will also do it. What he holds before him is this. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He cries with the apostle, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. In other words, friend, he looks to the faithfulness of God even as he comes to the covenant. He's not renewing the covenant of works, not seeking to establish his own righteousness in doing so. But through the Lord Jesus Christ, like the Macedonians, he is giving himself over to the Lord in a special way. Looking to every promise that is yea and amen in Christ. Now friend, all that he's doing then is he's pledging performance in Christ. And what do we mean by that? Friend, he's saying as the psalmist does, that through God he shall do valiantly. Through God. He's pledging in Christ in this sense. Rutherford writes, The debt of faith and obedience that we are owing to God now, to speak so, is not our debt, but Christ's. And He is cautioner for us. In other words, friend, when the covenanter comes and and pledges himself once again to be the Lord's, he says to Christ, You as mediator of the covenant of grace, as my cautioner in this place, you I look to, to fulfill all that has been promised. Yes, of course, justification, but even sanctification. Any obedience that is here, I pledge it in Christ's name. As Rutherford writes here, even the debt of faith and obedience, I put upon Christ's account. That's all the covenanter is doing. Through Christ, he is looking for all the grace necessary to fulfill that, which he would accomplish here, to be the Lord's. And so, friends, the application is, first of all, be careful that you are not trying to renew the covenant of works this evening. Note what the prophet Ezekiel says, If he trusts in his own righteousness and committing iniquity, all his righteousness shall not be remembered. But for his iniquity that he committed, he shall die for it. Those who would renew the covenant of works this evening, friends, those who would try to seek obedience through their own merit, through their own power, will find it is a covenant of death. They must do so only through Christ. And that brings us then to the covenanters, secondly and finally. Who do we find here in Jeremiah 50? We find a weeping people. Note what the prophet says. They shall go going and weeping. They shall go and seek the Lord their God. And friend, you have an example of this also in the scriptures. Speaking of of Ephraim, the prophet writes, They shall come with weeping and with supplications will I lead them. That is, these who are faithful covenanters, they will be led with weeping. Then the Lord writes, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus, Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn now me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was returned, I repented, And after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh, I was ashamed, yet even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. And again the text that we read from Zechariah. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him, as one mourneth for his only son. You see here that there is a real connection. Those who would come to the covenant of grace are really styled, as Christ himself puts it, as a weeping people, a mourning people. 
But also, as you look at this text, you can't miss also that these ones are not only weeping. Again, verse 5, we're told this. Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord. That word join in the original is a striking word. It's the word that you would use to describe one cleaving to something else or to someone else. Holding fast to them and not letting them go. In other words, friend, these are a weeping people, but these are a people who are holding to God. Forcefully. Earnestly. You see, friend, what you have in this text is the very thing that you have in Daniel 11. Those that join themselves to the Lord do so to serve Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants. Everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant. Friends, to cleave to the Lord is an act of faith whereby we throw ourselves upon the gracious covenant that God has made under which we stand and in which Christ stands as a mediator. What you have in this text, friend, is that these covenanters are those who are possessed of repentance. Their mind has been changed so that now they see that they are a people who have spurned a God who has been so gracious and kind to them. But it's not just that. There are people who are also cleaving to God's gracious covenant, cleaving in earnest, cleaving with great force, cleaving sincerely. And friend, that certainly must be the case for all who would renew covenant this evening. Repentance and faith is required. Says the Apostle, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Friend, when the covenanter comes, he comes cleaving to Christ. When he pens his name on such a document, or when he raises the hand as it was in the Old Testament, and even throughout the New Friend, he did so, as it were, with another hand clinging to the arm of Christ. Taking Christ with him. Pledging only in the name of Christ. Looking to Christ by faith. And again, of course, weeping over his own sin. Friend, not because his tears, of course, were meritorious. But because his heart had been changed. That's the covenanter. A man clinging to Christ and loosening his grip on the world and on sin. The very kind of thing you have in in Jeremiah 50 verse 5. The very kind of thing that we've been called to by the word of God these past several Lord's days. And so as we close, friend, we have to say this. We have to say, first of all, that if we would renew covenant this evening, we must be sure it is the covenant of grace. And to be sure that that is the case, friend, there are several marks of those who would renew the covenant of works this evening rather than the covenant of grace. Those who would renew the covenant of works this evening are those who are possessed of pride over their past attainments in religion. If they're pride over the great thing, if they're proud over the great things they've accomplished, those great things that they've done in the name of God, well then, friend, they're most likely to renew the covenant of works, not the covenant of grace this evening. Because really they're saying that their past obedience was of their own doing. And not of the work of Christ or the ministry of the Spirit of God. But on the second mark, friend, also are those who are harboring self-righteousness. We must be people who are dead to the law of works that we might be alive to Christ. And so, friend, those who would come and who would sign seeking to merit something before God this evening. 
who had pledged themselves to be the Lord's in a way that is not looking to the merits of Christ. Well, friend, these are people who are renewing the covenant of works tonight. And also, friend, if it is fear that induces and in no sense love, then, friend, we are to suspect a legal spirit in this. Yes, a Christian may be weak. Yes, a Christian may not discern well and powerfully the love of God. But the covenanter certainly has that seed within him where he sees that Christ is lovely. The covenanter certainly has that seed of grace within him that says that the law of God is good. And that he longs to be under such a loving head. But there is comfort in this text, no. And friend, that is that sincere, faithful covenanting is from Christ. Beloved, if we come this evening pledging ourselves to be the Lord only in Christ, only looking to the promises that Christ has made to make us a willing people in the day of his power, if we come really and truly cleaving to Christ this evening, as it were, taking him with us as we go before God, well then, friend, we're supposed to recognize that that is something not capable of the natural man. It is Christ himself that is inducing us to the work. And he then, friend... Who calls you first of all, as the Apostle says, will also be faithful to do it. Faithful is he who calls you to this work. Calls you not just by the word, but calls you through the ministry of his spirit. Faithful is he that has called you, who will also do it. Christ becomes cautioner for you if you if you renew covenant by faith in him. And finally, beloved, the exhortation is to do precisely what we have in this text. Renew. 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 Be as the Macedonians, pledging yourselves once again to be the Lord's. Friend, it's your solemn duty. But it is also your inestimable privilege to publicly, before God and before men, to cry, I cling only to Christ, to be the Lord's through his grace. May he lead us in that this evening. Amen.